On Monday, May 22nd, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation hosted a seminar titled, The U.S., China, and the Future of the Korean Peninsula. Dr. Jin Park, a public policy scholar in residence at the Woodrow Wilson Center and former member of the Korean National Assembly spoke. HKS graduate Julia Lee, a postdoctoral fellow at the Center for Positive Organizations at the University of Michigan's Ross School of Business, provided an introduction. Ash Center Director Tony Sage served as a respondent, and Ash Center China Programs Director Edward Cunningham moderated. This event was co-sponsored by the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs, the Harvard University Asia Center, the Fairbanks Center for Chinese Studies, and the Harvard University Kim Koo Forum on Korea Current Affairs at the Korea Institute. Cunningham and uh, run together with Tony our China programs here at the uh, Ash Center. Uh, obviously this uh, topic is incredibly timely so uh, no wonder we have such a great uh, turnout uh, this evening. When I was uh, a, uh, a lowly sophomore at Georgetown I started getting interested in Chinese US uh, commercial civilian nuclear technology trade and I remember distinctly going to my dean's office at the time Bob Gallucci, uh, this was in 96, and he had stepped down as the chief U.S. negotiator uh, uh, in 1994, um, where he had managed the uh, nuclear crisis uh, from the U.S. side uh, related to North Korea. And I remember him saying to me that even at that time, even though he was quite happy um, with the result of those negotiations and a delaying uh, of the plutonium program in North Korea, um, he said two things that really st has, have stuck with me as I, tend, as I watch uh, developments on the peninsula. One, that despite the success and, and his happiness in delaying the program, that he felt uh, over time there would be, of course, increased risk as the program could be restarted, uh, and a lot of the institutional memory may fade away over the past two decades, which I think in may, many ways has proven to be right. Uh, the second that I think is more um, important to today's discussion was that he felt in the discussions uh, uh, as the, the chief U.S. negotiator that often the major powers involved in the China, the United States, when discussing the issue around North Korea, often would lose sight of the fact that obviously one of the largest um, sources of cost, um, given all of the various scenarios of conflict, uh, so one of the, 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 the largest um, victims, of course, would be South Korea itself, not necessarily just U.S. troops positioned and all of the typical great power discussions that often happen in these negotiations. So I think that that's something to keep in mind. What, what is the role of, what is the voice uh, and voice is in South Korea uh, as these negotiations, which clearly are starting to, t to ratchet up and have heightened tension, uh, given uh, Rex Tillerson's comments uh, fairly recently uh, and the tests from the North, um, it's something we, we, wonder, we should wonder about, right? How, how will South Korea um, position itself, how can it position itself, uh, given the, the U.S., the, the, the most recent administration uh, that has come to power in the United States and its own challenges uh, in understanding the region, um, and also, of course, the... Uh, the shift in, in China that, is that will take place later this year with further consolidation of power under sea. 
So we really don't have, uh, we have the best um, potential uh, venue here to discuss that. We have the, the, the wonderful uh, brain trust in, in the form uh, of Dr. Jin Park um, and also uh, Professor Julia Lee. Uh, she, I'll just say that, uh, introduce her, because she in turn will introduce him. Uh, we will then turn over to Tony Seish for some comments and then Q&A. Uh, Julia is now an assistant professor uh, at the University of Michigan uh, School of Business. Uh, she is, uh, I think, the first uh, Korean female uh, PhD can, uh, graduate from the Kennedy School. So we, as we always do here at Harvard, we will take credit for everything that she does in the future, uh, as we tend to do. Um, as we've also done with, we're very fortunate to have Secretary Ban here as well, and we, we thank him for coming. Uh, I think Harvard does the same and takes <laughs> all credit for you, which is on So we take it wherever we can get it. Um, so without any uh, further ado, I'm going to turn it over to uh, Professor Lee. Um, she will then introduce Dr. Park, and then we will turn it over to, for his, uh, his comments. Great. Um, hi, everyone. I'm Julia Lee. I'm an incoming professor of management organizations um, at the Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan. It is my great honor to introduce Dr. Park today. We first met about 10 years ago when I was working for CSIS in Washington, D.C. And at the time, Bob Einhorn introduced us um, to meet with Dr. Park. And thanks to that introduction, um, I ended up working for him as a congressional assistant for about a year. Um, right before I came back to the Kennedy School for the graduates for my graduate <coughs> studies. Since then, he has continued to encourage me personally and professionally, and his life as a per public servant inspired me deeply. Dr. Park is currently serving as the chairman of the Korean American Association, which was created to promote, uh, pr promote mutual understanding, friendship, and cooperation between Korea and the United States. He's also leading the Asia Future Institute, an independent policy think tank designed to conduct research on the U.S.-Asia relationship and promote Korea's role in the Asia-Pacific region. During 24 years of his distinguished political career, he served as the presidential secretary for press affairs and later political affairs under the Kim Young-sam administration in the 90s. And he was also elected parliamentary member in August 20, uh, 2002 in Seoul. Then he served three terms in the National Assembly in the central Jongno district in Seoul. If this is not impressive enough, um, <laughs> while in politics he uh, served as the chairman of the Foreign Affairs, Trade, and National Unification Committee of the National Assembly. And in that capacity, he passed the Korea USFTA, North Korea Human Rights Act, ODA law, and PKA. Uh, PKO law in his own committee. He also served as a ranking member of the National Defense Committee and Intelligence Oversight Committee. And with that, please um, join me welcoming, uh, in welcoming Dr. Park. Thank you. Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Jin Park. Um, it's my great uh, honor uh, and pleasure to be back at uh, Harvard again, my alma mater. Uh, and to see you all here, uh, despite the unfriendly weather uh, today. And I know uh, this is a graduation season, so everyone's busy, uh, especially the students. Uh, but I'm very impressed that uh, we have a fully packed uh, uh, room uh, today uh, to share our views on uh, one of the most pressing issues of the day, uh, U.S.-China relations and uh, uh, North Korean uh, issue. 
Um, I'm very also humbled um, by the graceful presence of the Secretary General of the uh, former Secretary General of the United Nations, Pan Yemen, uh, whom I had the honor to study together at the Kennedy School back in 1983. Wow. Uh, by then, I was a teenager then. <laughs> 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 uh, Secretary Ban was, uh, we call him uh, Director Ban, Ban uh, Gojangnim, at the time, because he was in charge of the UN division in the Korean Foreign Ministry uh, before he took up the uh, the fellowship as a, as a Mason Fellow uh, for the Mid-Korea Program. Uh, we studied two years together at the Kennedy School and also at the Fletcher School. Uh, we have a Professor Lee Sung-yun from uh, Fletcher School. Uh, it was a very uh, rewarding and fruitful time in my life. Uh, and uh, I learned a lot from uh, Secretary General Bang at the time. Uh, his uh, experience and wisdom uh, and also his patriotism uh, about uh, our country. I'm very grateful to Professor Anthony Seich uh, and Dr. Edward Cunningham uh, and Dr. Julia Lee for inviting me and also uh, making a great uh, kind uh, introduction. Uh, it's my great honor and pleasure. And also I see Professor Carter Eckhart who has uh, contributed greatly to the study of the Korean studies throughout his life. And thank you for uh, coming. And we have a Professor Lee Shin-hwa from uh, Korea University, who had a seminar, I think, uh, recently at the MI, MIT. Uh, it was a very important, time, timely seminar, and congratulations. Um, so let me, uh, let me start uh, with some of the images that I brought here to discuss, uh, and so that we can base our uh, discussion on the presentation, and then I'll be happy to answer any questions, and also Professor Saich will um, present some questions to, to us. Uh, U.S.-China relations, and as you all know very well, uh, is a complex one, and I, I call it conflictual cooperation. Um, certainly, the aspects of conflicts and aspects of cooperation coexist together. Uh, some uh, people describe it as a co-evolutionary relationship uh, or competitive cooperation. So, but whatever expression you have, there are two different aspects, conflicts and cooperation. Um, I remember uh, President Donald Trump, uh, when he was waiting for President Xi Jinping uh, in uh, Florida to meet him at the Mar-a-Lago, he said, the meeting will be a very difficult one. And I thought so myself, that this would be a very difficult uh, meeting between the two. Uh, because during the campaign, President Trump mentioned that uh, China unfairly treats the United States. And is raping our country, United States. So I will impose a heavy uh, penalty, a 45% tariff on imports. Uh, so I said perhaps U.S.-China relationship under the Trump administration uh, would be a very rocky one, very bumpy one, uh, a very conflictual one. This is not least because of the trade relationship, but also because of disputes in South China Sea, which is still ongoing, and disputes in East China Sea, including China and Japan. But what is happening here is also 
a serious concern of the Republic of Korea uh, because of the geopolitical uh, importance of the region uh, through which our strategic materials go through from Middle East Africa all the way to the Korean Peninsula. So we hope that the disputes and conflicts in this region could be resolved uh, as peacefully as possible through dialogue and diplomacy. And then Korea was caught between the US and China uh, on the issue of FAD, or the Terminal High Altitude Area Defense. Um, the system, the anti-missile system has been deployed recently, uh, but the Chinese reaction uh, to this anti-missile system uh, has been very hostile. China has been kind of overtly opposing the deployment as something that is damaging or undermining the Chinese strategic interest. Uh, whereas the US and Korean, South Korean position is that this is a necessary defensive measures vis-a-vis -vis the North Korean nuclear missiles uh, in the future and now and present as well. But in the Mar-a-Lago, uh, I was surprised to see that the chemistry between the two leaders uh, and also the agenda uh, of the US-China summit uh, was focused on North Korea uh, compared to other urgent issues like the ones that I mentioned. Um, and President Trump, uh, as I understand, uh, has asked the President Xi that if China can solve this problem, I would not raise these issues. Uh, but if you do not, if you cannot resolve this issue, then we will go it alone. We can do it. We will solve this problem. So uh, in a way, President Trump is kind of outsourcing the solution to the North Korean problem uh, for the support of China. And China certainly, I think, is in a position to prove that it can exercise its influence to somehow uh, resolve this issue, which is not very easy. In the meantime, uh, American cabinet members, Defense Secretary James Mattis, visited Korea in February. He came to Korea and said, and sent a message to North Korea that don't try to test the will, the resolve of President Donald Trump, and also the strength of the US forces uh, in Korea. Any attack on the US or our allies will be defeated. And any use of nuclear weapons would be met with a response that would be effective and overwhelming. Um, the message was quite reassuring to the Koreans that here is a new government, uh, and the defense secretary uh, was sent to Korea to uh, confirm that the U.S. security commitment uh, continues. And then the Secretary of State, Rex Tillerson, as you know well, uh, also visited Korea uh, in March, and he gave a similar message to the Korean people. He said, I'm here to express ironclad alliance between the two countries, which serves as a linchpin for security and stability on the Korean Peninsula. And he said, the policy of strategic patience has ended. It's been finished, and we're exploring a new range of security and diplomatic measure and typically, he said, all options are on the table. And that's a coded word for um, the US policy, which can uh, employ 
the military options, the military measures uh, to deal with this, uh, this problem. And then Vice President Mike Pence uh, also visited Korea in April. And he said the same thing, all the options are on the table and we stand together, shoulder to shoulder, with the people of South Korea. And he said, North Korea should abandon this reckless path of development of nuclear weapons and continual use and testing of ballistic missile. That is unacceptable. So we know that the message coming from uh, Trump administration uh, is quite firm uh, and reassuring to the Korean people that the new administration cannot accept what the North Korea is doing. And there is a very strong solidarity between the two countries. So together, we need to deal with this issue based on firm conviction. And finally, President Donald Trump had a telephone call conversation with the new president of Korea, Moon Jae-in, uh, who was elected only a few weeks ago. Uh, and then they discussed the common uh, issue of North Korea. President Donald Trump said, I look forward to working with you and agree to continue to strengthening the alliance and to deepen the friendship. Um, to which uh, President Moon said the alliance is and always will be the foundation of diplomacy and national security. And thereafter, President Moon sent out the four special envoys to US, China, Russia, and Japan, uh, which I will talk uh, later. On the first day of this year, January 1st, uh, Kim Jong-un, the supreme leader of the North, came out and said, we are in the final stage of developing ICBM and the preparation for the test launch of the intercontinental ballistic missile. Why would country like North Korea uh, need an ICBM, the Intercontinental Ballistic Missile. Obviously, the target would be the United States, the country across the Pacific Ocean, and which is a strong ally of the Republic of Korea. And I said, this, uh, with a conviction that North Korea will not give up its nuclear weapons, and North Korea should be regarded as a nuclear country, nuclear state, which is actually written in the Constitution of the United States. Um, and then President Donald Trump responded in his Twitter, said, North Korea said it's in the final stage of developing nuclear weapons. It won't happen, he said. How? That's the question. How we will make sure that North Korea cannot reach the stage of deploying the ICBM, which can attack, strike the mainland of the United States. North Korea has been pursuing this aim uh, based on two tracks. One is a nuclear warhead technology, as you know very well, the miniaturization uh, of the nuclear warhead that can be tipped and mounted on the missile. And Kim Jong-un personally supervised this technological development by establishing a special strategic command in the <coughs> North Korean military, uh, and then also concentrating on the technological breakthrough. <coughs> right now, Korean defense ministry, Korean governments, estimates that North Korea has about some 50 kilograms 
of weapons-grade plutonium sufficient to manufacture 10 nuclear weapons. And that's, a, that's a conservative <coughs> estimate. Um, and the country also made a significant advancement in its ability to miniaturize nuclear warheads and enrich uranium. Now the American uh, estimate coming from the ISIF uh, is that as of today, as of the end of last year, North Korea perhaps has about 13 to 30 nuclear weapons. Would these values reflect the utilization of the 70% of the available estimated stocks of plutonium? And currently the country is expanding its nuclear weapon at a rate of three to five weapons per year. Some says it's about five or six bombs that North Korea can manufacture per year. So if it continues like this, then in about say five or 10 years, North Korea would have about 60 nuclear bombs. Now, I looked through the different series, the pattern of the North Korean missile uh, launches. If you see the one on the left, um, that was a SABM experiment in April last year. Uh, something that is being shipped from under the sea. And then just uh, sky up, soar up to the sky, uh, and then gets a fire engine, and then just uh, continue on its trajectory, uh, which is a kind of technological breakthrough that a country like North Korea, which is going through economic difficulties, can actually advance to this level of uh, missile technology is quite surprising. So many countries uh, have been issuing their assessment uh, of this uh, North Korean nuclear technology. The missile is called Pukuksong Iro, or Polaris Number One. And there's a series of the Polaris Number One, Number Two, and then the one, uh, one from the uh, second from the left is an um, SLBM KN11. Uh, 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 again, the Pukuksong Number One uh, in uh, August last year, uh, and then this year in February, 12th of February. Kim Jong-un has succeeded in transferring this SLBM, the submarine launched ballistic missile, to the ground to make it a ground launched ballistic missile and put the name Pukoksung number two. Um, this, this is another uh, technological breakthrough that they can now employ uh, this uh, SLBM technology, so-called so the cold launching underground. And this was put on a mobile launcher, on a caterpillar, so that it can be mobile and can hide in mountains or tunnels. Uh, and then uh, in March, uh, there was a display of the four Scud missiles being shot at the same time. This is another rare opportunity for North Korea to display their fireworks uh, through multi-missile uh, launching. Uh, and in March, uh, there was another high-powered engine testing uh, by North Korea, high-thrust rocket engine test, which Kim Jong-un himself said, this is a revolution. And the date is March 18th. So he called it, this is March 18th revolution that we can actually create this enough firepower 
to send the ICBM across the Pacific Ocean. Uh, and then, uh, about a week ago, there is a new IRBM, which they call it Hwasong-12. Um, this is another, this is another uh, technological breakthrough of being able to send the ballistic missile to the range of about 5,000 or 5,500 5, kilometers. Uh, certainly covering Guam uh, and perhaps Alaska, if, if it is being shipped uh, directly to that region. So if you look at this picture, and I think that no other countries has demonstrated the rapidity of the technological breakthrough than North Korea. And then yesterday, when I was flying from Incheon to New York, Boston, there was another missile launching by North Korea again uh, in about a week's time. Two major provocations by North Korea. And Kim Jong-un came out and said that this is very successful. And we can call it a strategic rocket. Uh, and then I authorize uh, our military to mass produce uh, these missiles. And certainly, uh, we can strike the mainland of the United States. Uh, this time, including Hawaii and Alaska. And if you remember the April uh, military parade, and the, uh, the regime came out with uh, three or four different uh, missile models, including the new ICBM model here with the casket, and then Pukuksong number one, the SLBM, and then the one that uh, they just uh, launched about a week ago, Hwasong. And number two uh, power elite uh, in North Korea uh, called Che Ryong-hae came out and gave a speech on that day. And they said, he said, if the U.S. wages reckless provocation against us, our revolutionary power will instantly counter with annihilating strike. And we will respond to full-out war with full-out war and to nuclear war with our style of nuclear strike uh, warfare. So this is a direct threat to any country, uh, including Korea, Japan, and the United States, that the North is ready to fight a nuclear war. And they have the means to do that uh, because of the technological breakthrough that they have demonstrated, miniaturization of the warhead, and also the expansion of the target range of the ballistic uh, missiles. So this is becoming a clear and present danger to all the parties concerned. Now these are the major trajectories of the ballistic missile that the North Korea has launched recently. Uh, if you look at this map, then this this is a Pukuksong 2, the one that I mentioned, the SLBM on the ground. And then this is, uh, uh, this is Pukuksong 2, and this is Musudan, and the one that was launched a week ago, Hwasong uh, 12, uh, has a flight range of 700 kilometers, but because they just shoot it at a high angle. So if they have shoot it at a lower angle, then you could have flown much farther, beyond 5,000 kilometers. So it is obvious that North Korea has the technological means and the strategy 
and the logistical support uh, and the government political will to reach out to a de facto ICBM power. And this is the range of the expanding North Korean ballistic missile range, sta starting from short-range Skad and Rodong to Musudan and the Hwasong-12, and then finally uh, intercontinental ballistic missile, which can strike the western west coast of the United States. And how long would it take? I don't know. Some say it's one or two years. The others say it will be three or four years. But given the uh, past, given the, given the pace of the North Korean technological development, perhaps they can shorten the period uh, of that uh, technological gap to reach the ICBM power. This is Kim Jong-un, J4, with the launching and technological breakthrough uh, and the uh, missile, different missile uh, series of North Korea. Last year, if you remember, they failed seven times with the Musudan ballistic missiles. Uh, and we were wondering uh, what is happening to uh, North Korean technological breakthrough. Uh, why are they failing so much? Or is this an intentional failure uh, so that they can uh, take out the data uh, of the missile launching and then learn something from the experience uh, of the failure? Or is it because of the intervention by other countries or the cyber warfare or electronic jamming that has made the North Korean Muslim missile uh, not working. Uh, I have no definite information about it, but certainly North Korea has overcome the difficulty uh, and then now is showing to the world that they can approach this level of ICBM strike. So Kim Jong-un said, uh, U.S. should not misjudge the reality that is mainland and operations in the Pacific region. Mainland and operations in the Pacific region, which would include Hawaii, Guam, are in North Korea's sight range for a strike, and that it has all powerful means for a retaliatory strike. So as long as the U.S. government keeps emphasizing that all options are on the table, then certainly um, one cannot exclude the possibility uh, of uh, considering the military option uh, given the firepower, uh, which is now around the Korean Peninsula, including the U.S. aircraft carrier, strategic bombers, and the nuclear-powered submarines, and the stealth fighter, um, and others. Uh, certainly, I think that the U.S. has the capability to make the first strike at whatever facilities or locations of strategic importance. Um, President Trump's national security advisor says, again, all options are on the table, and the president sets his sight on key targets. Now, how many targets are we uh, considering in terms of the theoretical uh, preemptive strike in the United States. Um, I have no definite information, maybe 400 to 600. Um, but are we sure that we can strike all these uh, hidden and clandestine, uh, visible and invisible uh, targets in North Korea? I don't think so. 
which means that North Korea would immediately respond with a counterattack towards the south. And that will certainly create tremendous sacrifices and destructions on the Korean Peninsula, which might lead to another Korean War. So this is a risky and costly option. Uh, and also could be very devastating. Uh, but in its theory, uh, this option still remains on the, on the table. Now, what is China's response to this um, hypothetical military attack? Uh, it was very interesting for me to see that the Chinese uh, journal, magazine, Global Times, uh, Huan Chu Xiubao, came out uh, with an editorial that says that if Pyongyang's unwavering pursuit of its nuclear program continues and Washington launches a military attack on North Korea's nuclear facilities as a result, Beijing should oppose the move by diplomatic channels. That's a general statement rather than get involved through military action, which means that China may not find it necessary to intervene militarily in case of the US military attack. But then there is a caveat. It says, if, however, US and South Korea armed forces cross the Korean demilitarized line in a ground invasion for the direct purpose of annihilating the Pyongyang regime, China will sound its own alarms and ramp up their military immediately, which means that if there is a northward uh, march by the South Korean and the American troops beyond the third race parallel, then perhaps China would have to intervene. So um, this, this is not an official position of the Chinese government, of course, but could reflect some of the thinking that is emerging uh, in the Chinese uh, leadership or in the military about what China can do in terms of contingency in, on the Korean Peninsula. Now, the U.S. government's position, the North Korea policy, has been summed up as maximum pressure and engagement, <coughs> MPE. Now, it has two aspects, pressure and engagement. Or you could say sticks and carrots or pressure and dialogue, but certainly we are in the stage of pressure, if not maximum yet. The President Trump certainly um, expressed that uh, North Korea is a high priority, uh, and then the international community should exercise uh, a serious efforts to put pressure and uh, impose sanctions on North Korea. Um, General McMaster, National Security Advisor, uh, said U.S. is exploring a range of options to respond to an increasingly provocative North Korea. But the administration would like to take action short of armed conflict. So not perhaps the military option, but take action uh, so that we can avoid the worst. So I think that's the position, the official position of the U.S. government. Somewhere in between, somewhere in between sanction and the military option. Sort of kind of a high level of pressure being applied to North Korea based on the U.N. resolution, U.N. Security Council resolution, uh, and also unilateral um, the U.S. measures to um, 
added pressure uh, on the north. Um, and General Buckmaster also mentioned that the policy calls for maximum pressure against North Korea regime, trying to halt its illicit missile and nuclear activity through sanctions and other diplomatic means. The policy does not, however, call for regime change. We used to talk about regime change for some time, and still, um, you know, some uh, people talk about regime change. Uh, but it lo looks like North Korea has its own way of kind of continuing uh, its, uh, its political regime uh, based on uh, very unusual, extraordinary policy, uh, so-called the dualistic parallel pursuit of nuclear weapons on the one hand and the promotion of people's livelihood on the other. I personally think it's a mission impossible to achieve both ends of uh, economic development and also the nuclear uh, expansion. Uh, but somehow, um, North Korean economy uh, is not actually a total communist economy. As you may know, it has a central planning system, which is not working well. So it depends on the growing black market system, the free market uh, system that the people have voluntarily uh, uh, have, been, have been engaged. So it could be a reason for North Korea to uh, subsist and continue and sustain uh, its very strange and difficult uh, economic regime despite the external pressure and the economic um, predicament. So uh, it would be reasonable to assume that North Korea may continue as a regime uh, without the regime collapse. But if there is an added pressure, uh, the real teeth can be applied to North Korea from outside, especially the financial pressure and squeeze, then I think that uh, the regime would begin to fill uh, this uh, burden from outside. And I think that is the right reason why uh, the United Nations role is so important in drawing up the international support uh, and also coming out with the effective sanctions on North Korea. Uh, Rex Tillerson, the Secretary of State, said, failure to curb North Korea's nuclear, uh, nuclear and missile abilities could lead to catastrophic consequences. So before we face with the worst case scenario, then it will be very important for the international community to, to uh, exercise uh, its influence. Now, in the meantime, China is a focus, main focus. The reason is that China has the economic leverage, as we all know, providing energy and food to North Korea. And two, President Trump has demanded that China should play its role in the meantime, before the U.S. takes its own steps, before Plan B, the Plan A, is for China to do its role. And number three reason is that China is becoming an even more increasingly troublesome neighbor of China, uh, not only in terms of economic relationship, but also in terms of the national security concerns that China would have if the North Korean nuclear proliferation continues. So I think President Xi Jinping 
uh, is certainly thinking about what kind of measures can be applied to North Korea in this case, and we look at one possibility, uh, which is a major economic leverage of cutting off of the energy supply to North Korea. And we know that 90% of North Korean economy uh, is coming from China through trade and also supply of energy and food. And if China, for some reasons, switch off this oil supply to the North, then the regime cannot continue more than, say, two or three weeks. And the Global Times uh, came out with the editorial on this issue saying that Beijing could severely limit oil shipments to North Korea if it does not curtail uh, its nuclear mischief. So this is surprising that China uh, is now thinking of the, the measures that it can take with regard to the energy supply because of the seriousness of the North Korean nuclear provocations. And we also know that uh, even without nuclear dimension or energy, China and North Korea are having direct and indirect trade transactions across the border. Um, China has already um, banned uh, coal import from North Korea, uh, but various other forms of uh, trades are going on, also including the Chinese overseas uh, workers uh, who are working hard, making money, and sending in back to Pyongyang. But all these kinds of uh, North Korea's economic activities, if it can be contained uh, thoroughly, then certainly North Korea will feel <coughs> the pressure of the international sanctions. Uh, and then there is a secondary sanction issue. Well, this has been discussed for some time in the U.S. administration and the U.S. government. And we know the case of the Dandong Hongxiang Industrial uh, development case where the Chinese companies when doing business with North Korea they also are aware of the sensitivity of this relationship uh, but this is taken as an economic uh, opportunities for China uh, in dealing with North Korea so the key is to put sanctions on Chinese companies and banks and individuals who are doing business uh, with North Korea, especially in the area of uh, weapons of mass destructions. So these are the methods I think that we can apply to North Korea for the time being, short of the military option uh, and the drastic measures that we can think about. U.S. position now, uh, over and over again, says that uh, Washington is not interested in regime change. Uh, U.S. ambassador UN Ambassador Nikki Haley also uh, repeated the same uh, message to North Korea. And she said, we are willing to talk if there is a total stop of nuclear process of any test uh, in, in North Korea. So one wonders whether there would be a plan B. If plan A uh, is a maximum pressure, then would Washington be interested in talking with the North Korean leadership? Um, President Donald Trump said Kim Jong-un is not a fool. He is a pretty smart cookie. Uh, and then he'll be honored to meet with uh, Kim Jong-un to discuss this issue. Um, this, I think, is the only possibility. 
First, because of the continuing provocation by North Korea, it would be difficult to try any direct dialogue with North Korea, if not a third party, 1.5 track dialogue. The, the direct dialogue with North Korea is out of the question for the time being. And two, the pressure, the maximum pressure, has not been fully employed yet. Uh, as Secretary Tillerson said, we're at the beginning of applying pressure on North Korea. And we hope that they can stop. The Kim Jong-un doesn't stop. So uh, applying this engagement uh, approach, uh, I think, is a difficult option at the moment. In the meantime, strategic cooperation is going on. Korean government, under the new president, had an emergency meeting, National Security Council, already twice, right after the provocation by North Korea. President Moon Jae-in visited Ministry of National Defense, and uh, he mentioned a quite firm statement against North Korea. Uh, and then we had a, some kind of a global cyber attack, uh, which still being, uh, is being investigated, and there is a strong suspicion that perhaps North Korea is involved uh, in this so-called ransomware cyber attack uh, that was targeting multiple targets uh, on, on the globe. South Korean Special Envoy met with uh, President uh, Donald Trump in the White House. Another Special Envoy went to China and met with uh, President uh, Xi Jinping. And the third envoy went to Tokyo to meet with Prime Minister Abe, all to convey the message of the new government that we need to deal with North Korea, we need to cooperate, and we need a better relationship with China, despite the third issue, and with Japan, certainly, to mend the fences and to improve our relationship with Japan. Now, the result of this uh, special envoy's mission uh, could be evaluated in the next uh, days or so. Uh, but I think that the most important thing is the first summit meeting between President Trump and President Moon, which is going to happen sometime next month. Uh, this is a hypothetical <laughs> picture that my assistant has drawn. <laughs> um, the two leaders are quite different in my view. Uh, President Trump um, is a very straightforward person, um, and he, uh, uh, he's, a, he's, a, he's a born uh, negotiator, uh, and also he could be very flexible. Uh, on, one, on one day he said China is a hostile power, and the next day he can say Mr. Xi Jinping is a great leader. Um, so uh, from our viewpoint, from Korean viewpoint, the most important thing is that first President Trump comes out uh, with a very solid understanding of the situation on the Korean Peninsula. And two, Korea and the United States uh, can stand together based on a strong alliance commitment that we can, we should deal with North Korean threat with a joint uh, efforts based on a combined forces uh, command. And three, maximum pressure and engagement should have a sequence and the strategy and the mm -hmm. scenario. Because you cannot apply pressure and engagement at the same time. Uh, it could be confusing. And also, North Korea can kind of drive wedge between the uh, US and South Korea. 
uh, unnecessarily. So uh, this is very important uh, meeting for policy coordination between the two uh, sides. Uh, President Moon Jae-in has been known as someone who has uh, more friendly uh, perspective towards North Korea, uh, the so-called sunshine uh, policy of the Kim Dae-jung, Roo Hyun administration. Now media describes it as a moonshine uh, strategy by the new uh, government. Uh, but I think that uh, given the two provocations by North Korea through the missile launchings uh, upon his inauguration uh, in the presidency, I think that the reality on the Korean Peninsula is now being felt very seriously by the new leadership, uh, which could help close the gap between the two sides on how to deal with North Korea effectively. Uh, perhaps I can stop here and uh, uh, invite your comments and uh, questions. Thank you for your patience. Thank you. Uh, thank you for a fantastic, uh, comprehensive uh, presentation of the challenges. Uh, so that we have some time for questions, I'll try not to talk for too long, which is very difficult always for an academic, but I will try and do my best. Uh, I think, let me then just make three sets of comments. And I think the first starting point is that really I think the perception of this problem has changed radically uh, because of what you explained about the progression of the missile development. I think even uh, in the earlier phases of negotiations, I think a lot of it was thought still to be bluster by North Korea, and they really wouldn't be able to develop the capabilities. And I think maybe that was not true in the military sectors, but I think amongst populations at large, I don't think people really saw this as a serious challenge. I think that is now clearly shifted, and we know we have to take it seriously. So let me make three sets of comments, moving from a very general thing through U.S.-China relations and then on to the relationship of China, uh, U.S., and the two Koreas. I think the first thing is that within the administration, which I think relates to the way policy has been moving, is that what we've seen is a fight between those that one might term as economic nationalists, like Steve Bannon, Peter Navarro, and those who have more of a global perspective, uh, people such as Cohen, Wilbur Ross, and so forth. And I think to start with, clearly some of the upper hand before President Trump eased his way in and realized things were a little more complicated than he perhaps realized as candidate Trump, that the first group held the upper hand. But I think what we're now seeing is a shift to people who understand the greater complexity. And secondly, that has impacted its way through into, I think, the U.S.-China relationship. I really liked your phrase of conflictual cooperation. I think that captures nicely the nature of the relationship. And indeed, I think people did think the start of that relationship was going to be rocky and conflictual. But I think it stemmed from a basic misunderstanding of the role that uh, trade and other issues were playing within the relationship. Uh, you talked about the, the claims that were made, all of which were unrealistic, the 45% tariff. First thing is the president can't actually do that. Congress could do that. If it was done you know, under WTO regulations, uh, China could legitimately impose billions of dollars of sanctions in any case. So that was never going to go anywhere. 
there is an important issue of this, though, I think, related to this question of how much pressure could the U.S. put on China in terms of making China be harsher in, with sanctions. And there, I think, again, there's a misunderstanding. And I think it stems from the fact that if you look at the investments in the respective countries, American investment into China not only is much larger than China's investment into the U.S., it's also more importantly integrated into the U.S. global production chains. It forms a very important part of that for those companies. China's investment into the U.S. to date is not really strategic. It's been very hit and miss ad hoc. And it's not really integrated in the same way into China's global economic interests and concerns. So that means should it come to a point where there is a trade war or conflicts, it's debatable whether the U.S. would really come out ahead in that kind of bargaining. So that does set some constraint around uh, the pressure that the U.S. could really put onto China. So let me then bring it down to what does that mean in terms of the question of relations to uh, North Korea. I think it's absolutely true that the Trump for the Trump administration, this is going to play the major role uh, in determining the U.S.-China relationship. Uh, as you said, they've kind of um, uh, outsourced this to China. So I think cooperation on resolving the nuclear development of North Korea is going to be a key factor on the U.S.-China relationship moving forward. So why might China not move in the way the U.S. would like? Well, I think there's a number of reasons. I think both nations clearly want a nuclear-free peninsula. But as we all know, there's a divergence in the bottom line of what is acceptable to those. Yes, the U.S. talks about the question, no, we're not going to enforce regime change. But I think for the U.S., they probably don't care so much about regime collapse as a result of increased pressure uh, on the North. Now, that could be problematic for the South, but I don't think uh, the U.S. probably cares quite so much about that. Whereas conversely, of course, China does fear that the outcome would bring chaos on its borders, refugees flooding into China, and, of course, U.S. troops right up to the border. So, yes, both were the nuclear-free uh, peninsula, but the bottom line for the two countries is somewhat different. So as a result, it's hard to see what combination of policies and pressure might bring about successful and acceptable conclusion. The one thing he didn't really say explicitly, but I think the key factor we now have to deal with is that North Korea is now a de facto nuclear state. That's what it is. There's no difference about that. I think it's absolutely improbable that the leadership in North Korea would be f willing to accept any agreement that will force it to denuclearize. And, of course, according to the Trump administration, that is unacceptable, even though, as you said, he might be willing to meet the smart cookie uh, in the North if conditions were right. The danger, of course, though, is if one man accepts that North Korea is a de facto nuclear state, what does that mean for the region? And that is very problematic also for China, because uh, what is it to stop other, reason, uh, other countries in the region from developing their nuclear capabilities? Japan, uh, South Korea itself, Taiwan, I mean a whole range of countries which potentially 
could go nuclear if it's seen as acceptance that North Korea is de facto nuclear and we start from there, the consequences are huge. It's also clear that military action is unacceptable. Maybe 15, 20 years ago, perhaps it was. I think the U.S. administrations had considered those possibilities. I don't know what the internal debates were, but in the end came to the conclusion, no, perhaps not, uh, as a result. And, of course, the country will be damaged most uh, by any such actions, uh, given the improbability of success, would be South Korea itself. Now, the question then is, it's also unclear that trying to increase sanctions will produce the desired effect, because I think the U.S. cannot rely on China to ramp up the pressure on North Korea uh, to denuclearize. It could if it wanted. As you said, it could bring North Korea to a halt within two or three weeks. When it turned off the tap for a little while on oil, it was a warning, a slap on the wrist, but it didn't go any further. But it always held back on that. I think President Xi Jinping is in a very difficult position. I think it's quite clear that Global Times reflected that somewhat. The popular sympathy is now uh, moving towards ridicule of North Korea, seeing North Korea as a hindrance rather than a help to its future aspirations. But it has the fears that I outlined earlier. What I had heard was that when President Xi left Mar-a-Lago, he was actually committed to much tougher actions vis-a-vis uh, -vis North Korea. But once he got back and met with security people in the military, they basically said, oh, wait a minute, this <coughs> might not be the best strategy for us and seems to have pulled back from perhaps adopting uh, a, a tougher uh, stance under, that, uh, under the current scenario. So where does it really leave us? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> people have better ideas, but... Obviously, South Korea, China, and the U.S. have to cooperate. I think it has to be on the basis at the moment that North Korea has nuclear weapons, that it is a de facto nuclear state. I think any dialogue is going to have to be restarted that guarantees North Korea for peace and recognition by the United States of America. Whether that's feasible in the United States, I don't really know. But then the question arises, would its leadership be willing to freeze its current nuclear program and allow IE inspectors back to monitor the development, so essentially freezing it where it is rather than trying to roll it back, which I think is impossible. The only other real options are that uh, the Chinese leadership take out the North Korean leadership and work with a proxy to put in someone that they think is more favorable to themselves. Uh, but that, of course, leads to... Uh, imponderables, and who knows what kinds of outcomes uh, would uh, come uh, from that. Uh, and on the questions of uh, negotiations, it's very unclear whether the current leader in the North would even be willing to accept that. One last question I have in my mind, although this goes back to history, which cannot now be undone, was Mike Chinoy wrote an interesting piece a while ago in which he put more blame onto the Bush administration for uh, the North Koreans going back to their nuclear program by actually not following through and not guaranteeing on some of the things that appeared to have been agreed by the Clinton administration. I don't know if that's true. It's not something I study. It's not something I look at. But were it to be true, that really leads to a diff very difficult uh, question of whether 
the North would then trust any kind of promise, any kind of agreement that might be made uh, from Washington in any case. So I'll leave it there and leave it open for comments, questions. Great. We, we do have our, our microphones, so the microphones will come around. There's a, there's a gentleman there with his hand up, and then the man in front here, and then uh, Mr. Overholt for there. Yep. Yes, please, go ahead. Oh, thank yeah, you. If you could just tell us very quickly who you are, then uh, ask your question. Yeah, sure. Um, thank you very much. My name is Tung Hyun. I'm a first-year master's student at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy. So my question is actually about before the co policy coordination, I think there, is, there should be a consistency in South Korea on its policy towards the North Korea. So to my understanding, the North, Korea, North Korean policy inside of South Korea is so much politicized as that it's hard to find a consistent policy towards North Korea. So as a three-term congressman and the chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee, what is your take or what is your perspective on building a consistent policy towards North Korea, coming up with a compromise between the two parties, not that it's four parties, but what is your ideas? What's your, um, what's your take on this? Great. So we'd like to reply to that or do you want to roll the question? Uh, maybe we can take some more yeah. questions. Yeah, sure. There's a gentleman here. Um, North Korea has been a nuclear state for 18 years, uh, as I see it. <coughs> what, what is new is the likelihood that in a few years uh, North Korea will achieve a, a, missile, a missile that will, can reach Seattle. Uh, and... Uh, if President Trump is presented with either military action or accepting such a ICBM with that capacity, uh, the chance of him using a military means of preventing that development seems very high. I would be interested in your comments. Thank you. We'll take two more, and then if yes, you want to answer those, and then we'll go to other people. Uh, I'll start with a completely unfair question. Uh, could you describe a package uh, that, when those two meet, or when, uh, after those two meet, when, when, when President Trump meets with Kim Jong-un, uh, a package that might have some chance of success. Uh, the second question, does President Moon have a strategy for uh, getting to know Washington and President Trump? Um, Kim Dae-jung got to Washington under uh, W. Bush and got an extremely negative and completely <coughs> unfair reception. Um, and uh, granted that it was unfair, uh, uh, shows the necessity of having some strategy in advance of a meeting. Uh, do you know whether such a strategy exists? Great. The gentleman there in green, and maybe if you want to answer those, and then we'll uh, take some I'm a local questions. resident. Um, South Korea and Japan 
were protected by the U.S. nuclear umbrella against China uh, from the 50s forward. Do you see any possibility a long ways down the road of China providing a nuclear umbrella for North Korea that might then lead them to be willing to give up oh. nuclear arms more or less the way South Korea and Japan have not developed them? Wow, interesting. Would you like to take those one yeah, questions okay, on, sure. and we'll, we'll right. go to okay. another round. Okay. Uh, <coughs> well, thank you for the four important questions. And uh, I think that uh, in the case of the first question, uh, the consistency in the South Korea, which is, I think, is really important essence of the uh, problem that we are faced with, that uh, within the Korean uh, political uh, environment. Uh, depending on the wh which government comes in, the North Korea policy obviously has been affected between the hard line and the soft line. And we, uh, in fact, we have tried uh, both the pressure and the dialogue and the carrot and the sticks. And my personal view is that uh, one option really does not solve the problem. It is the sunshine didn't solve the problem, and we saw it in the sunshine. Despite its good intention, North Korea didn't take up its coat. But the sunshine went to the top, but not to the bottom. Uh, and then, uh, in fact, it, uh, in a way, uh, in, in unintentionally contributed to the nuclear development of North Korea. Uh, whereas the, the, the pressure uh, strategy of in imposing sanctions on North Korea and also pressure uh, might have accelerated the North Korean nuclear development. Uh, completely the uh, different result uh, than was expected, that North Korea tried to kind of uh, compete uh, with the South Korean pressure and the North Korean technological development. They were just fighting for it. And as we see uh, during the last three months, they have in fact shown the technological breakthrough. So this leaves us with a dilemma. And I confess you that I, do, I don't have a magic solution myself. I don't pretend to be. But and I think that the most reasonable approach that we can take is to have a right mix of pressure and dialogue, uh, but maybe not at the same time, but with a sequence and the scenario and the strategy. And these have to be discussed between the two leaders uh, in the upcoming summit uh, meetings. And as I mentioned, this is a time that we should continue to put pressure on North Korea and make sure that uh, we are very serious uh, in making this approach to Pyongyang. That if they continue with a further provocation, say um, the six nuclear test or the intercontinental uh, more advanced version of the intercontinental ballistic missile, then we can go towards, the, say, the secondary sanctions or uh, putting pressure on China to stop its energy supply to Pyongyang. So all these kind of measures have not been taken yet, and those are the kind of uh, policy tools that we can discuss between Korea and the United States. Uh, but also at the same time, as President Donald Trump says, uh, we should not close the uh, a possibility for uh, engagement with North Korea, because that's the whole point, putting pressure and maximize a burden on North Korea so that uh, it can uh, make a better choice uh, of going down the slippery slope of dangerous nuclear proliferation or 
finding solution to promote the livelihood of their people in the, in the north. Certainly, they are left with uh, choices. So we need to make sure that North Korean leadership, in fact, seriously takes the options that they are faced with uh, through our concerted uh, joint efforts towards North Korea. Um, political parties certainly compete for power uh, in any country. And in the case of Korea, that's uh, also not an exception. Um, but in this case, uh, we have five parties now in the Korean political scene. The Liberty Korea Party, which is conservative, uh, and the Minjudang, the Dobun Minjudang, which is progressive party. And then we have uh, Parin Party, uh, which is also a conservative, and then the People's Party. Uh, and then the Justice Party. So it's up to the party leadership to consult with each other and come up with a coherent Korean national strategy towards uh, resolving this North Korean issue. I think that's the biggest task that this new government is faced with now, especially in the National Assembly, based on uh, supra-partisan interests, not just the partisan uh, fractional rivalry, but um, since this is a very serious national security issue, we need to go beyond the party lines to find the most effective uh, and realistic options to deal with, uh, with North Korea. Uh, <coughs> just the second question. North Korea has been nuclear state uh, already 18 years ago, uh, and President Donald Trump might be tempted to rely on a military option. Um, and you said the possibility could be very high. That's, that's your, that's I understand your question. Simulation, missile. Right, missile. just a little um, I, I think that uh, President Trump's words and actions uh, are different uh, so far based on his policy reversals, whether it's China uh, or whether it's uh, Syria uh, and whether it's uh, NATO uh, or whether it's uh, uh, NAFTA, uh, that's a kind of a different dimension, but somehow um, he's very flexible. So I don't, I don't see any kind of a obsession with the military option. And I think the President Donald Trump is surrounded by very experienced military leaders, defense secretary and the national security advisor, uh, and so on. So I hope that the Washington government can exercise maximum kind of a prudence in considering all these options on the table uh, and make a realistic approach. And I think that kind of a um, realistic approach is now taken by Secretary of State Rex Tillerson in the United Nations and in his own statement that if North Korea shows some willingness to um, take a different course, then U.S. Uh, might be willing, might be able to talk with them. But before that, uh, Washington would not uh, pursue a dialogue for the sake of dialogue. I think that's, I think that's a quite reasonable uh, approach. So I, I do not think 
that uh, perhaps Washington would be somehow taking this military option uh, as a realistic uh, or the only uh, option left to resolve the North Korean uh, issues, uh, including my hope and, and my also assessment. What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> Trump, you, you believe Mr. Trump and his administration are going to accept the North <coughs> achieving a capacity to send a missile as far as Seattle without military action? Uh, I hope you're right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, yeah, our task is to, to somehow begin to resolve this problem before we go to the worst case worst case scenario. Uh, that is the dilemma of the US government and US people that Kim Jong-un possess a striking uh, capability to the mainland of the United States where the US government risk that nuclear strike by North Korea to Seattle or Chicago or New York to protect South Korea or Japan. Uh, that, I think, is a very serious um, mm. challenge and threat, not only to U.S., but also to the alliance itself. So uh, before we face that worst-case scenario, we should find some solution. Uh, I, I really hope that uh, the new president of Korea, uh, Mr. Moon Jae-in, uh, in his first summit meeting with uh, President Donald Trump can discuss this issue in depth and convey the Korean position to Washington so that we can come out with a workable uh, joint uh, strategy between Washington and Seoul. Um, about the third question, uh, the package uh, between President Trump and President Moon, what, what kind of package? Uh, between Kim Jong-un, uh, Jong sorry. Uh, right. Uh, well, I, I think that the first step um, would be for North Korea to stop, halt its provocations, not to make further provocation, whether it's nuclear test or missile launching. <clears throat> um, yesterday he said, I'm very satisfied with the success of this new um, missile using the solid fuel. They used to use the liquid fuel, but now they use a solid fuel, Polaris number two. So we are now in a stage of mass production, so on. This has to be stopped. But the stopping is not the solution. It, this, is a, this is a beginning stage. This is not an exit strategy, but this is only an entry to dialogue between the US and North Korea. So obviously, the second uh, stage will be for the interested parties, including the United States and North Korea, to talk about denuclearization. And of course, North Korea would say, this is a nuclear disarmament talk. This is not 
this is not denuclearization talk. This is a nuclear disarmament talk because we are nuclear power ready. They will certainly come out with that uh, strategy. Uh, we shouldn't fall into the trap of accepting that because that would mean that countries that do not have nuclear weapons, like say uh, Korea, would not be a party to this talk, to this important nuclear negotiations. The South Korean position and the majority of the South Korean public uh, believes that any important negotiation with Washington on denuclearization should include South Korea. So I would want to see inter-Korean peace treaty before we talk about North Korea-US peace treaty. As you may know, the, the armistice uh, was signed without South Korea's participation. So we are not even a participant in the, in, the, in the Korean armistice regime. So this is very unusual and uh, extraordinary. So we need to make a uh, reliable peace regime on the Korean Peninsula, which should include the two Koreas. So when we uh, think about the six-party talks, uh, which has been suspended for, say, 10 years, we think about, say, two plus four. And when we say two, it's two Koreas, two plus four. Whereas North Korea says two plus four, the same two plus four, but they say it's North Korea and the United States. That's two. And China also has the same idea. That is that North Korea and the United States should make the decision finally. Um, but that's not the case as far as South Korea is concerned. So that we need to talk with uh, President Trump about what kind of strategy that we can work out between Korea and the US. And final solution is denuclearization, irreversible and complete denuclearization of North Korea should be the end result of these negotiations. Even if we start with the freeze, the moratorium, as an entry strategy, uh, certainly the exit should be the denuclearization of the Korean uh, Peninsula. Uh, the, the second part of your question is about uh, Mr. Kim Dae-jung and Bush uh, administration, uh, the case of the Korean and the U.S. President Trump avoids the problem. So the problem, yeah, right, okay. Right, um, well, I think that every president is a beginner driver. <laughs> so <laughs> certainly our president is learning into his job. So is President Trump uh, in dealing with, uh, with North Korea. Uh, so I think that the two presidents are perhaps in the same, same boat. Um, and they need to be very frank to each other and then come up with a workable, a realistic uh, strategy to deal with North Korean uh, provocations. And I think the most important thing is to demonstrate the joint uh, commitment to the U.S.-Korea Security Alliance uh, and the firm determination not to allow nuclearization for the proliferation of North Korea. So I think that's the, that's the basic requirement of a successful summit uh, meeting. And then US and South Korea can also talk about the division of roles in uh, resolving this, uh, this issue. Uh, it's quite possible that even 
if your positions are different somehow, you can come up with a combined strategy of division of roles uh, between the two countries. Because we are living close to uh, North Korea on the Korean Peninsula, whereas the United States uh, is across the Pacific. Um, so uh, from the North Korean viewpoint, uh, it, it is always, they're always tempted to drive wedge between uh, US and South Korea. So we shouldn't allow North Korea to do that. And in order to do it, we need a very carefully uh, crafted uh, joint strategy of division of roles between Seoul and Washington. Uh, so that's my answer to you. The final one, China's nuclear umbrella on North Korea. I've never thought about this. <laughs> uh, I, I wonder whether North Korea can accept this idea of relying on uh, Chinese security support. Maybe they would not. Mm -hmm. They would rather have an independent nuclear power uh, without, uh, without reliance on security support of, uh, of China. Well, if China can somehow uh, persuade Pyongyang to give up, Yeah, I think uh, we often underestimate the enmity, enmity that there is between North Korea towards China. Mm -hmm. Just because there's all this talk about being like lips and teeth and close, actually, mm -hmm. It's a relationship fraught with friction, so I would tend to agree that the likelihood that North Korea would accept protection mm -hmm. uh, from China is unlikely. We're actually over time, but there was a gentleman there in a white shirt who was very patient, so perhaps we'll give him the last question. Uh, there's a microphone coming, making its way around here. My name's Ogden. Ogden Ross. Uh, over at Fairbanks Center, they did a historical review of the two Koreas over the last several centuries in relation to Japan and to China. <laughs> it was quite interesting because North Korea and South Korea have not always been on the same page. But during the last uh, Chinese involvement in both sides, they built a industrial base in, in North Korea, uh, heavy industry based on hydropower. And then after the Korean War, that infrastructure may have been converted to some of the nuclearization tendencies. And then Moon suggested, one of the first things he suggested was <coughs> rice for power. Exchange rice. Possibly take some of the hydropower into the south. My view is that the idea of ratcheting up sanctions is similar to the Iraq war scenarios, which ultimately leads to regime change, even though they're not talking about regime change. All they need is a yellow cake incident, and they'll do it, or they'll try to do it. 
as long as they can drop a couple of Moabs. You know, but then what happens? We have 100,000 artillery pieces aimed at Seoul. I don't think we're going to take all of them out. So, uh, so my question would be, uh, diffuse and negotiate. Before the next nuclear test, because one of the issues is that he hasn't been nuclear testing recently. He's been setting off test rockets. So... Uh, what we really don't want him to do is build the bombs and stick them on top of a rocket. It's also totally unclear that he has an ICBM that can reach the United States, but maybe in two or three years it can. So it seems to me this is the time. You don't necessarily want to push him into a corner where he reacts like a rat and strikes out, you know, because then that would give Trump an excuse to strike out as well. Okay. Final comment? All right. Uh, well, thank you for your thoughtful uh, idea. Uh, certainly, we wouldn't like to rush into uh, uh, pressurizing or cornering North Korea to, uh, so that they can react uh, more, vi more violently uh, or to uh, find a uh, dangerous, uh, uh, take a dangerous course of action. So, I mean, you're advice of prudence in dealing with North Korea is certainly something that uh, needs to be seriously taken into account. Uh, but the speed and the scope of challenge that North Korea is making now, provoking through the series of missile launching, uh, is so stunning mm -hmm. that the, the people in, North, in, in South Korea uh, have a serious concern about the challenges by by the North, and uh, we uh, we look for a strong support of the United States in making sure that we can somehow maintain peace on the Korean Peninsula, avoid the Second Korean War, uh, but to find a solution to this problem. So, uh, obviously, this is a very difficult challenge that we are faced with, um, but uh, we certainly need a prudence and realism uh, in uh, dealing with North Korea, the two aspects at the, at the same time. And certainly the lesson that you uh, explained with regard to Iraq, uh, certainly uh, we need to take that into account. So thank you for your good advice. Great. Well, just on behalf of the Ash Center, please uh, join me in welcoming and in thanking Dr. Bart. You've been listening to AshCast, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovations podcast. For more information about the Ash Center, upcoming events, and future podcasts, please visit our website, ash.harvard.edu, and follow us on social media, at Harvard Ash. Mm -hmm.